this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. What else can we say, folks, other than, holy shit! If the Justice Department needed a smoking gun to indict Donald Trump, it just arrived like mana from heaven. Trump's claim that he had declassified the massive trove of government documents he took from Larda Lago was bullshit from the start. Well, CNN just burst that bubble, reporting that federal prosecutors overseeing the probe into the documents have obtained a recording, yeah, a recording of the former president admitting that he kept a classified document containing information about proposed attack plans against Iran. The recording indicates Trump understood he retained classified material after leaving the White House. On that recording, Trump's comments suggest he would like to share the information, but he's aware of limitations on his ability post-presidency to declassify records, two of the sources said. The recording is of a July 2021 meeting at Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. The attendees included multiple people working on an autobiography of Trump's previous chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in addition to aides for the former president. The report comes as the former president's attorneys are seeking a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland about the Justice Department investigation of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago's home and private club. Special Counsel Jack Smith, who is leading the Justice Department investigation into Trump, has focused on the meeting as part of the criminal investigation into Trump's handling of national security secrets. Sources describe the recording as an important piece of evidence in a possible case against Trump, who has repeatedly asserted he could retain presidential records and automatically declassify documents. And remember when the idiot said that you could declassify them just simply by thinking it? Prosecutors have asked witnesses about the recording and the document before a federal grand jury. The episode has generated enough interest for investigators to have questioned General Mark Milley, one of the highest-ranking Trump-era national security officials, about the incident. The July 2021 meeting, again held at Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, with two people working on that autobiography of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as well as these aides by the former president that included communications specialist Margot Martin. The attendees, sources said, did not have security clearances that would allow them access to the classified information. Meadows didn't attend the meeting, sources said as well. Meadows' autobiography includes an account of what appears to be the same meeting, during which Trump recalls a four-page report typed up by Trump's former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley himself. It contained the general's own plan to attack Iran, deploying massive numbers of troops, something he urged President Trump to do more than once during his presidency. The meeting took place six months before Trump's legal team sent 15 boxes of records and classified documents back to the National Archives, and more than a year before the FBI raided Mar-a-Lardo, seizing more than 100 documents. 
Trump's acknowledgement that he couldn't show the document to people demonstrates. It goes straight to the intent, but it demonstrates that he knew full fucking well that he wasn't able to declassify documents at whim. His allies had previously argued that he had a standing declassification order that would immediately declassify any document removed from the Oval Office. Trump himself claimed that he could declassify things again by thinking about it, by just simply by taking it. But the funny thing is, he knew it was all bullshit. And now Smith, who is investigating Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents and his role in the January 6th insurrection, well, the guy's got the proof on tape. So it's game fucking over. It's not clear how prosecutors got the recording, but they also recently acquired a slew of recordings, including some handwritten notes, transcriptions of audio recordings, and invoices from Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran. A judge ruled in March that some of Trump's attorney-client privilege could be pierced after prosecutors for Smith's team found that Trump intentionally misled his own lawyers, including Corcoran, about keeping classified materials when he left office. Those records reveal that Trump knew he wasn't supposed to keep the classified documents. Not only did he do so anyway, but Corcoran was also prevented from searching Trump's office at Mar-a-Lardo, where the FBI later found some of the most sensitive, top-secret material. Smith has not yet issued any criminal charges, but he seems to be circling ever closer to Trump. So this is a developing story, folks. More to come, I swear, and I promise you, more to come. Welcome to the Chicago Board of Trade and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. In the 1980s, they were the largest financial markets in the world. This guy made two million, this guy made three million, this guy made four million. It was like a, an ATM machine for uh, traders. Traders were making money hand over fist, and they thought it was their own little secret. Four FBI men wearing wires infiltrated the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange. This lavish and daring undercover operation was the most expensive in the Bureau's history. But was it successful? It all depends who you ask. The FBI used extraordinary means to detect extraordinary fraud. They were down there to expose a big cheating scandal, did they? I don't think they did. From Entropy Media, this is Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles. Available now wherever you listen. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Asha Rangapa. She returns to us from Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where Asha serves as a senior lecturer. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Her work involved assessing threats to national security, conducting classified investigations on suspected foreign agents, and performing undercover work. While she was at the FBI, Asha gained experience in electronic surveillance, interview and interrogation techniques, 
firearms, and the use of deadly force. She teaches and writes about national security law, information warfare and propaganda, as well as leadership ethics. Asha has published op-eds in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, amongst others, and has been a legal and national security analyst for CNN, as well as appearing on NPR, BBC, and several of the major television networks. Asha is an editor for Just Security and a contributor for former U.S. attorney Preet Bharara's legal newsletter, Cafe Insider. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Asha, great to have you back on the program. I want to start by, by discussing the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Now, some people believe that it's the surest path for a felony conviction against the former president. Can you do me a favor? Can you unpack for my listeners the case and where it stands? Um, and also, does it have the possibility of a prison sentence for Trump? What's your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Michael. And um, it's great to be back on. Yes, I think that the Mar-a-Lago case is really the most straightforward of all of the different potential crimes that he can be charged with. And here's why. You know, the documents case, the classified documents case is pretty, you know, linear in the sense that it's he, he had the documents in his possession. I mean, that is incontrovertible. We know that because there was a search warrant executed and they removed them from his home. And really, the question here is, you know, what did he do leading up to that search? And also, you know, what was his intention? And unlike the cases of, say, um, you know, the the January 6th and the fake elector plots and all of this stuff, which he might be charged with as well, which involve, you know, kind of grander conspiracies where you have to get into what conversations were being had and what were people agreeing on. Um, here, you know, there there's just a straighter line. This is about what Trump did. And to that point, what we have is a pretty clear progression of events that you know, the Department of Justice was basically treating him with kid gloves, begging him to return these documents. Then the archives was begging him to return them and then issued him a subpoena, which gave him the opportunity to voluntarily, you know, hand them over. And what we're learning now is that he not only resisted that, but he has apparently, you know, was attempting to conceal um, and obstruct that effort. So that obstruction, I think, is just, um, you know, especially now that they've been able to pierce the attorney-client privilege and really get into uh, what was what was going on in Trump's mind um, and what he was asking his aides and stuff to do, um, I think is pretty, you know, strong. And it also plays into an Espionage Act violation because it gets to his willful retention of classified documents. And yes, I think were he to be charged and convicted of both obstruction and willful and the Espionage Act, uh, this is 793E, I do think he would he would be sentenced to jail time. Yeah. Now, look, I want to first unpack this and then I want to just sort of because I like your identification of it as linear, 
Because I have always said that I believe that the Alvin Bragg, the district attorney of New York case, is also linear. I've used that, you know, that same term uh, on television, on my, on my shows. And the reason that I say it's linear is it's very simple. You have campaign finance violation. There's a second crime that's associated to it. You have copies of checks. You have recordings. You have all sorts of um, testimony from people who are involved firsthand testimony. Hence why Alvin Bragg ended up doing the indictment. So I do believe that that to be linear as well. But this one, and this I don't really understand why we as society today where classifying which illegality should, for lack of a better term, should trump the other illegalities, right? Now, I'm going to acknowledge that seditious conspiracy is certainly worse than um, campaign finance violation, hush money payments, and so on. I'll also say that seditious conspiracy is probably on par with this specific case that we're talking about right now, which is the you know, stolen, uh, I, I shouldn't call them stolen, the, the improperly taken uh, top secret classified documents. But the New York, I believe it was the Post and the Times, um, both turned around and they in their story, this was incredible, that Trump and his aides had allegedly practiced moving sensitive papers that Trump elected not to give back even after the subpoena had come out approximately, what was it, about a year before that, and that he had kept these classified documents open. I mean, they were visible in his office and allegedly even shown to certain people. Now, there's all sorts of statements that are coming out that he may have shown them to individuals associated to Saudi Arabia, that Rudy Kaludi, you know, had done some stuff with them also. I don't know any of this to be true, but if true, that's really a national security issue. And yeah, that sounds like treason to me. In fact, it sounds like what they had done to reality winner times a hundred. But the part that I thought was really the most interesting is when they requested that he returned the documents, that he actually took steps to thwart the subpoena, to interfere with the Justice Department's investigation, including not allowing them to go to the office where everybody knew that that's where the documents were located. And I think the obstruction of justice charge, some comes out to like 18 USC 1519. And all of the stuff, as you said, and this, uh, the Espionage Act is um, Section 793E, where this carries a pretty heavy sentence. Tell me more if you can. Yeah. So for both of these, we're really looking at intent, right, Michael? If we remember back to the Mueller report and um, Mueller had outlined 10 potential counts of obstruction of justice, and there were three components to each of them. There was the obstructive act. There was the nexus to an official proceeding. And then there was whether there was corrupt intent. And that intent part was always is always the toughest nut to crack because you have to get to what is in this person's mind. And the things that you just mentioned, the intentionally, you know, 
blocking people from looking in his office when they were required to comply with the subpoena, the um, the potential moving of documents from one place to another in order to evade, you know, the um, identification and detection when, when the lawyers are searching for it. These actions all go to um, the obstruction. But what I think was just really the the big kahuna was when the judge allowed special counsel Jack Smith to pierce the attorney-client privilege because, you know, that's sort of the, there's a cone of silence right there um, it, that otherwise we wouldn't be able to see what, what Trump was, was saying and, and, and doing and how he was reacting and what, and, and just for your listeners, this is a pretty big deal. Um, you don't just get to, you know, learn what attorneys and their clients are discussing or what, what attorneys are um, writing, you know, in their notes and stuff. But in this case, the judge found that Trump may have used the attorney services to commit or conceal a crime. And this is the crime fraud exception. And so Jack Smith was not only allowed to compel Evan Corcoran, one of his attorneys, who was responsible for certifying compliance with that subpoena to testify in front of the grand jury. He got his notes and Lordy, there are notes, you know, and the notes really will then get to what it was Trump's state of mind, because he was also taking notes on his reactions and how he was, you know, um, his facial expression. So that that I think to me, that is the big thing. And again, that defiance, the unwillingness to comply with the subpoena also gets to the Espionage Act violation because 793E, I don't know if you have the text in front of you, but it's willfully retaining national defense information and not not returning it when it's when an official demands it back. So there's sort of like both, there's kind of an element of obstruction kind of baked into that statute as well. What, what amazes me is... We're talking about a former president of the United States of America. We're talking about a man who has touted himself as a master of the business world, right? We're talking about a guy who claimed to be worth at least $10 billion, if not more. And yet he surrounds himself now, today, with some of the stupidest people on the planet. And I, I don't even want to say it respectfully because some of them are beyond stupid, that are providing him with advice. He comes up with a defense. And I promise you that while this defense may be something that he concocted, as you know, because you've been around Donald long enough and you saw it when we first met you know, on the aircraft and uh, at, I think it was at the Doral uh, so many years ago, People are afraid to say to him, no, Donald, you're wrong. That is a really bad position to take. So this idiot in chief, this former idiot in chief, comes up and he comes up with his own defense, which, of course, had to be approved or at least acknowledged by those that are around him. And what is his defense? That he declassified the documents. And that he declassified, I'm going to use his voice, I declassified the documents merely <laughs> by taking them, right? Or 
I could declassify them simply by thinking they were declassified. Right? That's not true. Asha, can you declassify national security top secret documents simply by thinking that they're declassified or simply by taking them? Where did he even come up with this crap? So I call this the stupid defense, which stands <laughs> for secret, telepathic, unilateral, uh, preemptive, irrevocable declassification, which doesn't exist. Um, you know, it it is a really dumb defense um, because while in theory, the... I mean, or, I mean, not just in theory. In fact, the president is the president while he's president is, um, you know, has original classification authority and can declassify it. What what it fails to understand is classifications aren't just labels. They aren't just there for, you know, window dressing. They mean something. When something is top secret, it means that its disclosure would constitute a grave threat to national security. So any kind of secret declassification, it doesn't make sense even conceptually because, you know, if you've secretly declassified it, that doesn't change the nature of the underlying information. It doesn't change the fact that the disclosing it could be a grave threat, which is why there's a process, right? There's a process if you want to declassify something so that, let's say, that uh, piece of information involves a sensitive source. You can go protect that source or you can get them, you can exfiltrate them or something like that. There's a process involved and there's clearly no evidence that that process was followed um, here. And by the way, I'll just add my retort to Trump's stupid defense, which is that if he, as president, could secretly and unilaterally declassify declassify something, guess what? Biden can reclassify something without having to tell anybody. And clearly he considers them classified now. So that's the current status. But could Biden classify them simply by thinking it? <laughs> that's the that's the question of the day. But you know what really makes Trump stupid? All right. Beyond. The National Archives. I mean, this is the part where, again, I, I don't even know how to describe the level of stupidity that's going on behind these doors. The National Archives gave to Special Counsel Jack Smith 16 records, 16, that show that Trump and his top advisors knew that they had knowledge of the correct declassification process yes. when Trump was president. So if you have these 16 records, could you imagine they're going to put this ass clown on the stand again? Because we saw what a great job he did in the E. Jean Carroll case. Could you imagine, um, Mr. Trump, can you please tell us what's your knowledge in regard to the declassification process of documents when you were president. And he gives the answer that I could declassify them simply by thinking it. I could declassify them simply by taking it. Weren't you advised by the National Archives, by NARA, on the proper way to declassify documents? 
Weren't, weren't you? I don't recall. Well, how about your aides? Were they? To, could you imagine what this deposition would look like? It would be a shit show all over again. And it would basically show that it's not just that he's incompetent to be president of the United States again, but rather that there was really nefarious reasons why he took these documents. And now I think it's more incumbent upon the FBI and law enforcement to figure out who they showed those documents to and how our national security could right now today be in great jeopardy and great danger as a result of this buffoon's actions. Yeah, you know, I think it's worth kind of thinking through the the implications of of his defense. Like even if you were to accept it at face value, why as a president would you de secret declassify something without going through the procedure? As I just mentioned, the the pur purpose of the procedure is so that you mitigate the national security threat that would result by the disclosure of that information. The only reason to do it telepathically or secretly, so where, you know, you're kind of protecting or, or you're, I guess, legally no longer on the hook, but yet that information, no one else knows and no one has taken measures to protect it, is to make sure that that information still is valuable to someone, right? If if people take steps to mitigate the damage, then that's because you can disclose it and it won't matter to anyone. It has to, to it, for it to remain valuable, it has to remain um, still, you know, top, like top secret. And so I think, Michael, and this is where I would love to know your thoughts, because this is what we haven't gotten to. What was his end game? What was his motive? Was it just ego? Was it just to have bragging rights when people came to Mar-a-Lago to say, here are my you know, love letters from Kim Jong-un or whatever? Or do you think there was a clear transactional motive that was involved here? Because I think, you know, we can get into the, whether you declassify or not, but the question is, even if you were to accept that, why would he ever take so that path? So that's a great question, Ashen. It's one that I actually discussed on MSNBC and CNN uh, ad nauseum when it was first revealed that Trump had these documents and the FBI went in to get them. And I said that I believe, knowing Donald Trump, that it's for nefarious purpose. That, And you may recall that I had said that it's almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card. That if you think you're that. going to indict me, that if you're going to incarcerate me, I have a series of photocopies of national security documents so significant to this country that it would put our country 50 years behind where we are today in terms of protecting the citizens of this country. You want to play that game that he will use this to make money, to gain money, and to protect himself at all costs. That there is no good reason that he took this. And look, we're not talking about the love letters from Kim Jong-un or We're from talking about nuclear Putin. secrets. We're talking about nuclear secrets. We're also talking about documents that dealt with, I think it was Macron, and also with Israel, and so on. This is really no joke. He's not just jeopardizing America's national security, but 
He's looking to upend the entire Middle East. And one has to now suspect the relationship that exists between Kushner, Trump, Mohammed bin Salman, the Qataris now, the United Arab Emirates. There's something very unholy that's going on there. And I don't even want to include the Arab Emirates. I don't want to even include Qatar. I truly believe that it has to do with MBS and it has to do with Kushner. And it's all so Donald thinks that he can keep his hands clean. It's an arm's length transaction, you know, plausible deniability for him. There's nothing good that's that's going on there right now. There's no reason that MBS bailed out or had bailed out 666 Fifth Avenue using outside sources. There's no reason that they gave two plus billion dollars to Kushner to start a fund. There's no reason why Kushner was picking himself up and leaving and going to hang out with MBS in Riyadh or somewhere else that was completely um, you know, unknown and not scheduled. None of this is any good. And I do really believe that this is incumbent upon this administration, the Biden administration, the Department of Justice to get to the bottom of it. But I want to follow up with that and say to you that the, Garden, the Guardian reported that Donald's lawyer was tasked with searching for the classified documents uh, during that Mar-a-Lardo raid, you know, after the Justice Department issued the subpoena. And that that lawyer told associates that he was waved off from searching the former president's office, where obviously the FBI later found the most sensitive materials anywhere on the property. So add that when explaining to my listeners, what do you think that this means for Jack Smith's case and why it's such an important development? Because everyone's talking about it. Well, it's an important development because it gets to the intentionality and the the state of mind um, that these, you know, here's the, to get to kind of circle back to one earlier point you made and how stupid his defense is and his lawyers are. Listen, this was really easy for Trump to get out of, right? After they gave him the subpoena, like just hand it all over. Comply. Comply. Okay. So comply. And let's say you didn't comply. You get freaking busted. Okay. Then like, at least publicly be like, you know, oh, I had no idea they were there. Like, you know, come and get them. I had, you know, it wasn't me, whatever. This guy went to court and tried to file a civil action to keep them. He tried to assert as a legal theory that these were personal records that belonged to him. In other words, he's he's kind of making the case for Jack Smith because it's very clear that he wanted to keep these documents. He he was desperate to keep these documents. He They had value to him in some way that we just discussed, and he was unwilling to return them. So all of these other pieces, and he's, he made that very clear publicly through this dumb civil lawsuit that he filed with uh, Judge Eileen Cannon. And all of these things, Michael, that you're pointing to about how, you know, he he secreted them there into his office. He didn't allow people to search in there. All then simply bolster that uh, that that motive. And then couple that, Asha, with the 
CNN Town Hall with Caitlin Collins and some of the other, we'll call them off-the-cuff comments made by the former idiot-in-chief there. Yeah, the boxes were were out there on the White House lawn. They were there for everybody to see. I took them, and we had them brought to Mar-a-Lago. You know, and I... If you were ever going to be a Donald and point the finger and saying, it wasn't me, they took them, they took the wrong files, I didn't know, the boxes were sealed, I didn't show them to anybody, here you go, that defense is right out, right out the door. Completely out the door. He, in his own words, so I'm just not sure what the hell the guy was thinking or is thinking or who around him has the balls to turn around to say to him, no, Donald, don't say that. Don't do that. Instead, they all just placate him because they don't want to argue with him on the spot. Because, look, I've been down that road. You argue with Donald, and it is an ass-beating. He is fucking vicious. He's mean. He's nasty. He says terrible shit. And people just don't want to fight with him. But at the same time, he has now put himself... So far behind the eight ball, I just don't understand why Jack Smith has not already made the recommendation to Merrick Garland to file the indictment and why that indictment has not already been filed. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I suspect that he's going to make that recommendation if he hasn't already You know, here's the thing. I think that Jack Smith is going to want to dot his I's and cross all his T's. You know, we talked about how declassification, for example, we talked about how declassification is a really is the stupid defense. But we know that, you know, for the reporting, for example, that NARA had provided him with information about the procedure to declassify the fact that he they've had Cash Patel testify to the grand jury. You know, they he is anticipating that defense even as you know far fetched as it is so i think that jack smith is being as thorough as possible closing off all possible defenses um before he he brings this cuz he knows it's got to be airtight and that he's going to have to have right, him dead all right, to rights all right all right, all right. I, I i get it i get it asha right i mean that's a that's a great answer for a law school exam. But let's be let's be real amongst ourselves and my listeners here. That's not a defense, right? You know, I thought I thought them declassified or, you know, I mean that's just it's not a plausible defense. Why why Merrick Garland has not already filed an indictment? Why Jack Smith? Your answer to me when we first when we first started this um, this episode that it's linear. You're so correct. You are spot on. It is linear. And no matter what defense Donald and morons decide that they're going to try to put there, I could declassify them with my mind. The fact that I took them means that they're declassified. That's not true. And you don't have to try to think of what defenses the guy has had. He's put his, he put his foot in his mouth already a half a dozen times that negates any legitimate defense that could have existed. And my fear, my fear when it comes to Merrick Garland is that he's so fucking slow to get anything moving by the time that he finally does. It's going to be knee deep into the middle of this next election. 
And we all know the hands-off approach DOJ takes to, right, indicting or continuing cases when it's the middle of an election. This is not right because the American people now for two years have been waiting, waiting for an indictment on Trump. I mean, it took Alvin Bragg to be the first to jump. If Merrick Garland doesn't do it today and they don't move this case quickly, my fear is that Donald will never be held accountable for it. I think he will be held accountable for for at least this, the classified documents. We have to remember that the search was executed in August. And because of his dumb, crazy lawsuit in civil court, uh, it delayed this. He was successful in delaying the investigation for what was it, like three months, four months? I mean, that didn't get resolved until December. So really, I think we're already seeing that Jack Smith is sort of in the final stages, it looks like, of at least the Mar-a-Lago case in the span of about five months, given that delay. So, you know, I think he's moving faster than it looks like. And I share your caution and concern about Garland, but I think that's why we should be really glad that he appointed Jack Smith, because here's the deal with the special counsel regulations. Um, You know, although Merrick Garland does have to approve the decision to indict or not indict, he is great deference to the views of the special counsel and to the extent that he overrules the special counsel, he has to report to members of Congress his reasons why, which means that they are going to become public. I don't think, look, he let Durham continue his dumbass investigation for, you know, whatever. How long was it? Three years? Um, Yeah, three and a half years. So I don't think that he is going to interfere with Jack Smith's recommendations. And I do think they are forthcoming because I think if you take into account that delay, that three-month delay because of uh, the Eileen Cannon civil suit, um, I think he is, he has moved pretty fast. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the—and then I'm going to jump off this topic for a sec, but Alvin Bragg's case, the trial, is scheduled for March. Yeah. March 25th of uh, 2024. And I'm scratching my head on that one, too. Why? Why? I mean— They got me in 48 hours from a Friday to a Monday. Why in the world do you have to wait? So we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, you have (laughs) June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, 10 months, 10 months to wait for trial. Why? It's already, I mean, I, I just don't say they have to figure out how to move these cases faster because. Trump will just delay, 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 and he will figure out how to file an action and how to then try to slow the system down. That's what he's so good at. But I agree with you on something. I agree with you that, you know, um, Jack Smith is moving in this specific case expeditiously, faster than than most people thought. Let's not forget that. Go ahead. What's that? I was just going to add one more thing on that delay part um, or kind of the, the time that it takes that because this involved classified information, there is a classification review that has to happen. Um, 
if they're going to charge him with that Espionage Act violation, because they are going to have to prove as an element of the crime that this was national defense information, um, you know, and that these were properly classified. In other words, that their disclosure would be damaging to national security. So I just want to point out that there are a few aspects to this that add extra time and, um, you know, in for, for reasons might, that might be beyond the the control of Jack Smith. Except, Asha, you have a series of documents or a document inside of a file folder. The file folder turns around and says, top secret, onto it, highly classified, and so on. The classifications have already been spelled out, you know, on that document in advance, But they'll advance, do a review right? before they charge the Espionage Act, because otherwise it, the defense would be, well, yes, it said that, but this was not properly classified. In other words, the classification... So, and, and, you know, like, look, with the Hillary Clinton emails, you know, when they did a classification review, there were several emails that were, you know, marked whatever, confidential, or, you know, that, that shouldn't have been. Um, and so you don't, again, to he wants to foreclose all the defenses. So before you charge, so I would say, even though, yes, they were in all those folders, they probably, so they most how likely long were, could but they're something have to like that take a minute an hour, six <laughs> hours, you put a team of three people onto it. You turn around because every one of those documents has a, a, a beta stamp to it that corresponds to the file, right? So you turn around, you look at it, you see what it is. Oh my God, it's the nuclear codes. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds to me like it shouldn't be at Mar-a-Lardo in his office above the catering hall. So look, one of the things that we know and why we know that this case is moving quicker than what people think is that... Last week, you know, Trump sent this letter demanding a meeting with Merrick Garland that made, I mean, it read more like a teenage rant from Clueless or from, you know, Mean Girls than anything. Because it went on and included references to President Biden and Hunter Biden. It took aim at Jack Smith, right? To me, knowing Donald the way I do, it's a sign that Trump and his team know that an indictment is looming, and basically sent out this letter in desperation. That's what, it, that's what it smells like to me. But they also know that Garland would never take the meeting. All right? That's what, knowing again, let's go back to the term delay, delay, delay. Knowing that Garland would never take this meeting because it's just stupid, now allows Trump to position himself as once again being the victim, right? Yes. He's being unfairly targeted, and he could now do this to who? To his base, so that he can whip them up, get them all in a frenzy, grift financially off yep. them, and so on. How do you view this letter and its intent? The same yeah. way or differently? I, I view it the same way. So it, it does suggest that there have been intimations that, you know, at least they are clearly panicking and afraid that he's going to be indicted. I discussed this on my podcast with Renato Mariotti. We don't think that he's gotten a target letter um, or, or that I think Renato said that he would not anticipate that in this case, the Jack Smith would invite invite him to come in and uh, his lawyers to come in and, and, you know, make their case for why he shouldn't be indicted. So um, but they're they're clearly afraid, and it does seem like he's in the final stages. But I think you are absolutely right that this is also trying to shape a narrative that, you know, 
we had we had all the information of why this was not a crime, but Merrick Garland wouldn't listen to us. And, you know, as you said, he's the victim. And we saw this also in the lead up to the Alvin Bragg indictment. Remember when he yep. claimed that he was going to be indicted and then it didn't happen? He was able to use that that anticipation and information vacuum because you know, prosecutors don't speak until they finally decide to file. So he creates this sort of information vacuum where he can create whatever narrative he wants. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, it's his in alternative un- Yeah, it's an alternate universe that only Donald lives in. But he does have that 26, 28% of the Republican Party that follow the Pied Piper right into that alternate universe of stupidity where all he needs to do is to say to these listeners it's just not true i declassified everything they're my documents i could do with them as i wish and i'm trying to now impress upon merrick garland and jack smith the fact that i'm right they're wrong but they don't even want to hear it because it's a witch hunt that they've already made up their decision and send me 50 bucks 100 bucks but if you want the bronze piece of shit plastic donald trump that spelled wrong you know membership card that's five grand and what did he make off it seven million ten million i don't even know what the last number was that he made off of the alvin bragg scenario just it's it's Again, it's pathetic. And the fact that there's still 28% of that Republican Party that wants to go down in a ball of flames with him, I just don't understand it. But let me move on and ask you this, Asha. Last week, the DHS issued a warning about the potential for violence in the lead up to the 2024 election cycle that could target the nation's critical infrastructure to also target faith-based institutions, government facilities, as well as minority communities. Now, as someone connected to law enforcement and national security, which you are, what are you hearing about the potential for extremist extremist violence? I think it's very high. Um, And we're seeing this in, you know, I mean, we saw this in New York before his indictment. Listen, January 6th was not a one-off. It was a trial run. And what it demonstrated is that he has people who are willing to follow through with violent acts on his behalf and that he can mobilize them pretty much with a wink and a nod, you know? Um, Now, this is why all of these hundreds of prosecutions, and in particular, the prosecutions and convictions of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys are so important because they they provide a deterrent. They say, you know, they send the message that you follow this dude, there will be consequences. Um, right now, I think we should be alarmed. I mean, it's it's astonishing to me that he is out there, that Ron DeSantis is out there promising pardons for these people, because though that those are green lights to engage in political violence is basically saying, don't worry, we you know, you gotten you got caught for January 6th, but we'll make sure you get off for it and you can go back and do it again. That's that's what that's what is happening and they're they are giving the green light to to allow it to happen okay so 
Look, you brought up New York as an example because that's what Donald tried to do yes. with right with the Bragg indictment and so on. This is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. It's going to be massive protests. Out front, when that indictment was taking place, NYPD, and I've said this before, NYPD is like a militia in and of its own. I would put the NYPD up against any other country's militia, right? Um, and they would fare as well, if not better, than virtually most countries' military. They're so good at what they do. Think about it, how many parades we have in New York, how many dignitaries, how we deal with UNGA when they come in. There were more media in the fenced-off bullpen area than there were protesters or violent individuals. And I think one of the reasons for that is look at what happened to the Oath Keepers. Look at what's happened to the Proud Boys. Look at what's happened to the more than 700-plus people that either have done time, are doing time, or are going to be doing time, like Stuart Rhodes with an 18-year seditious conspiracy charge, right? He's going to do 18 years. Do you think any of these people are saying, oh yeah, I believe Trump. I'm going to go to New York, and I'm going to go create some sort of hell. First of all, most of these guys are chicken shit anyway. They're not going into the minority communities, because they know they'll get their asses kicked, all right, up and down the street. They know that they're not going into government facilities, especially not in a place like New York, because the second that law enforcement like yourself, at former FBI, when they get that type of information, they realize they're not making that same January 6th mistake ever again. And so, boom, they're right on it. And they have, you know, they have more than enough, more than enough, uh, backup force in order to tame these shrews, so to speak, right? So I don't think you're going to see, even if in fact Merrick Garland indicts Trump on these Mar-a-Lago documents, I don't think you're going to see anything greater than what you saw here at the Manhattan DA's office when Trump was calling for it, which was basically, as we like to say in Yiddish, goodish magunish. Nothing for nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you The, you know, the it was pretty pathetic, the turnout for him in New York. And what we need to remember is I think the threat of violence on his behalf isn't going to look like January 6th in the sense that, you know, I don't think you're going to see some mass mobilization um, of his little, you know, shadow lunatic army, you know, come out on his behalf. That, by the way, January 6th was really the result of months long mobilization and disinformation and kind of um, rallying, be there, be wild, all of that stuff. I think the threat is, you know, lone wolf violence. Like you just need one crazy person. Right. You just right. need one crazy person. Um, and, you know, just what was it last week? Like the guy who rammed into, you know, the barricade and wanted to kill Biden or whatever. And, I know I think he's an Indian guy and people are like, well, so he can't be, you know, a, a white supremacist or whatever. I don't know. I don't know why, you know, what confused ideology he has. But this person 
has was clearly you know radicalized to believe that biden is the enemy um and that rhetoric along with the fbi being the enemy that these judges are the enemy that these crimes are or these charges are all illegitimate are coming not just from trump by the way michael but from many elected officials um and mm-hmm. and it just takes one person uh to to do something really violent and tragic. But you know, Asha, I agree with you 100% on this. I firmly believe that Trump will instigate or try to instigate some type of a civil disturbance, thinking in his mind, because again, like I said before, he lives in an alternate reality. In his mind, all he needs to do is to put out there whether it's telepathically or through his mob code-like speech. All he needs to do is to put it out there and his people will react, right? That there will be some sort of a civil unrest that will make the January 6th insurrection look like a picnic. But instead, so let me get your thoughts on, you know, on how do you think that Trump's belief that he could use violence How do you think that that will work in terms of pressuring the Justice Department, whether to indict, not to indict? You think that there's any thought as to this in the minds of whether it's Jack Smith, Merrick Garland or anyone else? I don't know if it would play a role in Merrick Garland's calculus. Um, I feel like it it could. And I say that only because of. The fact that he delayed so long to kind of even get the ball rolling on the January 6th investigation, you know, for the people at the top. I don't think it will. I mean, given how aggressive Jack Smith appears to be going, I I just don't think he would go all the way and have this, you know, airtight case and then be like, oh, no, I don't know. Like Trump might send somebody after me or my team. I just don't think so. And that would be the wrong um, approach. And I think here is where. You know, people poo-pooed Alvin Bragg's indictment as being, you know, whatever. Politically like not, motivated, politi- worthless, not like legitimate, it's just, it's not ticky-tack. A, not even, I'm not even talking about the, uh, like, crit, like, you know, people, Trump supporters. I'm talking about, you know, you have many law- lawyers who are like, yeah, nobody should bring this case. This is just, you know, small peanuts. No, this was very important. And in my opinion, it fits in the broader arc of essentially election related crimes. Um, And so there is a through line, in my opinion, from Alvin Bragg's indictment to January 6th. But also he took the step. He broke the seal. Like we're out there now. You know what I mean? And I think especially given that New York has indicted Trump, they're like for the Justice Department not to, if they have a a basis to bring charges, um, would be just a dereliction uh, of duty. And I, I don't think that they will stop because of the threat that Trump presents. Well, let's certainly hope not. So then how do you believe that a potential federal indictment will impact cases on the state level, mainly like what's going on in Georgia with Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, who will likely also seek to indict Trump But now all of a sudden it's later this summer. I was 100% certain that it would have been this month. I really thought that 
It's there. She has it. Go ahead, indict. Do your thing. Let him put on his own defense. He's entitled to defend himself, but bring the charges. How long has it been already? It's two plus years since that you know, perfect phone call was made. We already have information. They've spoken to how many witnesses? This is another one. Why are we sitting and waiting? So how like, what do you think the impact of cases like Fannie Willis's will have if in fact the federal indictment comes down? You mean, uh, can you clarify if, if the feds indict him and then Fannie Willis? Indicts after. Indicts after. Yeah, I don't know. I will defer to federal prosecutors on that in terms of, I mean, I think they'll all proceed and, you know, on their own tracks. And then there's going to be a lot of scheduling problems and it's going to get in the way of Trump's rallies, I guess, <sighs> you know. Um, right. So I think really the question is, you know, if he's facing indictment in three different jurisdictions for multiple crimes, at what point will the Republican Party dump him? I mean, that to me is the bigger question because they'll they'll proceed. I think all of them will proceed and they'll get scheduled and they'll be working around each other. And well, let me talk. Let me talk over over you for just one yeah. quick second. Will the Republican Party dump him? Can they dump him is the question that I want to ask you simply because he has that lunatic base that is sticking by him even if he shot and killed someone on Fifth Avenue and took pride in doing so. They're sticking with him because they say stupid shit like, well, he speaks so straightforward. I understand what he's saying. Really? That you, you understand what he's saying? Well, what is the problem with your understanding of the English language that you can't understand unless somebody speaks in like third grade language? But they're sticking with him. So it's not even so much can the Republican Party drop him. Will his supporters drop him based upon an indictment or another indictment or a third or fourth indictment? I don't know, Michael. I mean, I'm yeah, me not neither. a political analyst, but like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess back in the day, it took, you know, two years for um, Republicans to finally tell Nixon that he couldn't stick around. I mean, Nixon also wasn't like, you know, ready to overthrow the government of the United States if he didn't get his <laughs> way. But um who knows? I think we just have to wait and see because I think it's such an extraordinary situation if they if the Republican Party were really to move forward with their like the best candidate that they can put forward as somebody who is under indictment in two states and by the Department of Justice. Like that would be a pretty sad commentary. OK, so let me then expand upon this sad commentary shit show of a of a we'll call it a derated movie. Right. Because it is conceivable. It really is conceivable that Trump could be indicted in two, three, four places, whatever, and imprisoned and still run for the presidency from prison. I Correct. mean, some argue that it will make him more popular with his right wing base. So if you would, 
<laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. Could you unpack the law as you know it that applies to individuals running for the presidency who are incarcerated? And I know because I'm actually, I'm thinking about maybe throwing my hat into the race myself. I'm not joking you. I really am. I mean, yeah. Well, the, you know, so the- from, from, cause from what I understand that it actually has happened a few times in the past, right? With there was a socialist candidate, Eugene Debs, then mm-hmm. there's, uh, what's his name? Lyndon, um, LaRouche and even, uh, the Tiger King himself, the guy, Joe Exotic, right? They all staged campaigns while they were behind bars. So if you would discuss with me the logistics and the possibilities for Trump, because Trump could potentially do it. Not like Joe the, the Tiger. I'm talking about Tony the Tiger. I'm, we're talking about Donald Trump here. Yeah. So, Michael, you're absolutely right. There's no legal bar to someone running for president of the United States if they are charged with a crime, if they've been convicted of a crime, or even if they are sitting in jail. The qualifications clause uh, for the office of the presidency is laid out, and it's uh, pretty straightforward in the Constitution, and it doesn't include any bar based on that. I think what we're getting to here is kind of a refrain that we've mentioned many times in the you know past six years, uh, if not you know specifically on this podcast, but you've heard it, which is that we've relied on norms, not formal laws for our democracy to function. And we've traditionally had, you know, gatekeepers in the parties that would say, hey, yeah, maybe it's not a great idea to have this convicted felon, you know, who's serving time from being our, our main candidate. I think that's the problem here is that those gatekeepers are gone. And therefore, we are in uncharted territory. Now, I don't know that a Trump sitting in a jail cell um could win a general election but let's just let's you know move forward with this nightmare scenario and assume that he ran and he won what what would happen i mean he he gets sworn in in his jail cell his first he act pardons of op- himself his, he pardons himself his first act of office is to pardon himself um that pardon can't be challenged because his attorney general is someone who he's appointed. Um, you know, where do you go with this? It's uh, a no man's land, um, you know, legally, constitutionally, um, and of course, you know, for our democracy. So, I, I mean, I hate to kind of be kind of wrapping up our discussion on that scary of a note, that horrific note, but I think that's where you were headed. That's where you kind of want, you know, this already and, and wanted me to explain to your viewers. Yeah. Well, look, our democracy has only survived 246 years, not because it's written in stone. This isn't, we don't have the 10 commandments as our constitution. Um, it's because people respected the constitution. They respected our democracy Right. Forty four presidents before Donald decided that they wanted to be president of the United States of America to be president, not to be dictator, autocrat, you know, uh, monarch, supreme leader or what have you. Donald is somebody different. And he yes. is exactly what the what our founding fathers feared is that this person would want to be more 
then president of the United States. But it brings me to another question, which is on the same thing. Do you believe that a federal indictment of Trump will strengthen the candidacy of someone like a Ron DeSantis or a Tim Scott? Or is he such a political or, or let's stick with just Ron DeSantis. Let's keep Tim Scott out of this for a second. Do you think that it will strengthen the candidacy of Ron DeSantis? Or do you think that he's just such a political loser and a disaster that even an imprisoned Trump would beat him in the primaries? Who, DeSantis? Yeah. He's a, he is such a loser. He's such a tool. Like, he, I mean, really, like, I mean, as far as, like, you know, those things I, like, charisma, and I, people hate it when I say that Trump is charismatic. He is charismatic. He's he able is charismatic. To, you know, he's charismatic. He's um, rhetorically savvy. He puts these zingers out there. You can't keep your eyes off of him. He sucks all the air out of the room. Ron DeSantis has none of those qualities. And he's so, trying so hard to be, to do the Trump playbook. Um, so, but to answer your question, I think the problem is that you have a primary system, which essentially rewards the extremes because they're the ones who come out and they're the ones who vote. And in that contest, Trump is going to beat DeSantis. It may very well be that in a general election, you know, DeSantis could do much better because, you know, compared to somebody who's under indictment in, in three jurisdictions. Um, and that's the. That's could you the, believe? Could you believe we're even no, having this conversation? Know, How pathetic! It's that so the dumb. best that the best that the, this is the best that the Republican Party can find, right? You got a guy who wants to fight with Disney Corp because Mickey and Minnie are sexually confusing children and. The rest of the nonsense, the anti-Semitic nonsense of Ron DeSantis and all this other sort of anti-gay, the transgender issues, the sexuality. Banning boy, books. They, yeah. Boy, there's something seriously wrong with this guy. So, I mean, maybe, look, maybe he has his own personal proclivities that he's trying to mask by doing this. I don't know, but whatever the hell it is, it's really something fucked up and weird because the positions that he's taking and thinking that the rest of Florida and the country are going to side with him on it. Well, it's, I don't get it's, it. it. I think you've hit your, the nail on the head. I mean, Trump is, you know, he's he's a demagogue. He has authoritarian impulses, and, but he's really, I think, also like essentially a narcissist and he's he's transactional. He's sort of simple to figure out. And in many ways, I think he's also easier to manipulate because he's so transparent about like kind of what motivates him. I think Don uh, Ron DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump um, yeah. in terms like he there is a this very like as you kind of intimating a very dark like um vindictive uh you know I, I don't know like he's the kind of person who you know i would feel like would have like show trials in in a soccer stadium or something like that if he could yeah, well, and so, like so so will so will dictator trump but you know Asha, <laughs> as the as the as the hour comes to an end i have one last question for you because i want to switch gears you know for the last question here and discuss with you the debt ceiling, something that you can't turn on the television today without discussing the debt ceiling. It seems that Biden finally managed to outmaneuver Kevin McCarthy, or rather, 
It seems that McCarthy made a decision that was good for the country versus partisan politics. Do you believe that this move will spell the end for McCarthy? Or do you think that this will help him as he continues to want to be Speaker um, of the House? I don't know. I, at this point, I can't follow the, you know, kind of the psychological logic of that wing of the Republican Party. I mean, I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene defending McCarthy on Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, in many ways, that was just that was a game of chicken, right? Like, who was going to blink? And um, the... I think the question is, like, are the people who are truly ready to burn the country down going to be willing to go along with someone who ultimately, when push came to shove, was not willing to burn the country down? I don't know. I don't know who's running what anymore. Hard to imagine. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine. I mean, we have to really consider whether or not that a guy who actually for the first time in a long time, does the right thing for the country. You can't let the debt ceiling go without destroying the entire economy. What'd they say? 10, 10 million jobs lost. I don't even know. No, no government employees getting paid. Then on top of that, your 401k is going to be worth dog shit. It's going to cause all sorts of other economic problems in the country our debt you know um well some of it will be called some of it we won't even be able to go out to the world with the same credit rating which means that our dollars worth even less i mean what are they thinking and then when they say when you listen to trump who turned around at that cnn again that town hall great question by by caitlin and he turns around and he goes yeah i would uh, i would never uh, allow this to happen. I think that they should allow the debt ceiling to default. And you know, well, we, they didn't allow it the three times that you guys, well, I wasn't president. I was president then. I'm not president now. Think about what this guy is saying and think about it long and hard when you're considering having this ass clown on the ballot. This just, it's not even narcissistic. It goes way beyond narcissistic it's just fucking stupid no i agree um and just to wrap up i i did want to mention because you asked about being on the ballot and we talked about qualifications i will say and maybe this is just a hopeful note something to keep an eye out for is that there is one crime that could potentially keep trump off the ballot and that is 18 usc 2383 insurrection and rebellion which is, you know, inciting people to resist the authority of the United States, which is exactly what he did. I don't know whether Jack Smith will charge it, but that does carry as its penalty uh, a potential prohibition from holding public office. And so maybe that's one potential ray of hope that we can try to hang on to. Except, again, he would have to then go to Merrick Garland to indict on that, you would have to have the trial on that, which 
I'm trying I mean, to end on a high note. I understand we're 10 months away from a linear, <laughs> easy case like the ones that's going on right now in, in District Attorney of New York's case or the one that we know that Jack Smith should bring, right, uh, immediately. That one's 10 months away. This one would already, he would already be president if, or the election would already have taken place by the time that this case would even come to fruition. And once he loses this one, he doesn't have the ability to carry a general election. Trump has no chance at that. The problem is, you know, it's really about Joe Biden showing that he has the strength to run again for another four years. And that's the big criticism I hear from Democrats right now, that he's physically strong enough. This is a tough-ass job. For anyone. I mean, look at how Barack Obama turned gray in those eight years, right? I mean, he aged. Think about what happens when you're 80. It's not a joke, you know? Um, Asha, let me thank you. I would love to end on a positive note, but not here on Maya Culpa. <laughs> I, I, I thank tried. you. I know you did, and I thank you for joining me. And thank you. Appreciate you. And now for today's Maya Culpa. With the discovery of this audio recording, the evidence against Donald Trump is irrefutable. There is no fucking way that he will not be charged. One, it is a tape recording. Two, it involves not just possession of classified information, but the dissemination of classified information. That puts it in, into a completely different ballpark when you're at the Department of Justice examining the seriousness of the violation and whether to bring charges. And it's being shared with people who don't have clearance to get this information. I mean, my friends, this isn't just some silly document. These are fucking war plans given and shown to people who have absolutely no fucking clearance to see them or to get them. I mean, this shit boggles the mind. This is the intelligence community's worst nightmare. Trump was always a liability in how he handled sensitive information. But this, this shit is on a whole nother level. This blowhard, this fucking dumbass egomaniac was waving around war plans to show off to the biographer of this dipshit hillbilly chief of staff. Now we have to find out what else was disseminated and how much damage did this jackass really cause not just to our national security, but to the world. This is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. I mean, we're going to find out much more as Jack Smith circles Trump. If it were just him taking documents home to show off to the losers at mar a -Lardo, well, I mean, that's fucking bad, but that's just one thing. Now we know that this was more than just ego and souvenirs. This man purposely kept certain documents for strategic reasons. I've been saying this now for two years when I said that they need to search every single location that Donald Trump has been to, including his children's homes, all the golf clubs, as well as any property that he was at, because you can't trust him. And now Donald's going to have to pay. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. 
It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my name.